0: Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was an eminent American jurist and Supreme Court justice whose impact on the nation's legal landscape was profound. He came from a distinguished family with a rich intellectual heritage. As a young man, he served in the Civil War and many years later took a seat on the high court, which he held for three decades. Stephen Budiansky is author of the book, Oliver Wendell Holmes, A Life in War, Laws and Ideas. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. had that long tenure as a jurist. What was his impact on the law and the way it's practiced in America?
1: Well, you know, Holmes had an enormous impact for no other reason than he lived so long. And he served uh, 20 years on the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. And then in 1901, at age 61, when most normal people are thinking about retirement, he's appointed by Theodore Roosevelt to the U.S. Supreme Court, where he served for nearly three decades. Some of his most important and famous decisions were actually dissents that later were adopted by the court as the law of the land on free speech, the rights of criminal defendants to a fair trial ending the long-standing reactionary practice of the supreme court and striking down any laws protecting the rights of workers or consumers or economic regulation.
0: I watched a a book talk you gave in Washington a while back on um, Holmes and you did explain the challenge of of covering his life because he lived so long. Um, He was 93 years old. He did so much. But let's start in those early years, Mr. Budiansky. Uh, Where was Holmes from, and what was his upbringing like?
1: Well, he was from Boston and very much from Boston, uh, the upper-class Boston society. His father, namesake Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., was a household name. He was a poet. He wrote the famous poem Old Ironside, calling on the U.S. Navy not to dismantle the famous warship from the War of 1812. He wrote he was a co-founder of the Atlantic Monthly magazine, wrote these humorous essays called The Autocrat of the Breakfast Table, literally known around the world. He was like Mark Twain a generation earlier. And um he and Holmes's father coined the term Boston Brahmin, which certainly described uh, his family. Uh, it was a very intellectual upbringing. Uh, it was a, a secure upbringing. And Holmes said after his experience in fighting the Civil War, he said, he said, the world never seemed quite the same again, but certainly is rooting in, you know, the son of this great wit. You can see that in Holmes Jr. in almost everything he did and said and this man who had a great natural way with words and um I think still despite you know having been his world shaken by his civil war service in many ways he still was a man who went through the world with incredible confidence which came from this upbringing and self-confidence and you know I I the, the interesting thing to me about his civil war experience was it didn't make him a cynic it didn't make him a nihilist or a hedonist it made him you know recognize the limits of human certainty the limits of ability of anyone to control their lives and yet he you know one of his 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 famous phrases he would say to all of his friends he said the only solution is to file in and do your damnedest and he said, you should always be an enthusiast in the front part of your mind and a skeptic in the back. And that's the thing that really comes through, I, I think, about his personality so strongly for me. And, you, you know, a lot of this, I, I, as I mentioned, really, I think, comes from that kind of, you know, upper class confidence. But it's interesting how the Civil War, in a way, matured and deepened that rather than overthrew that sense of confidence towards life.
0: I do want to talk more about the Civil War in a moment. I, yeah. I did hear you mention in that book talk some of the friends and other people, other acquaintances that Holmes had growing up, many names that we would actually recognize. Give us a sample. Who were some of them, and, and what, what was their <laughs> impact on his life?
1: Well, you know, it was an incredible array of friendships he had in the political world, literary world, ph- philosophical world. Probably his most famous friends were William and Henry James, Uh You know, Henry James, uh, leading literary light novelist of 19th century America. William James, one of the founders of modern psychology. And um, they were, uh, you know, it's striking to see here's home, you know, growing up with these people and maintaining these correspondence and friendships with them. They were. You know, he 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 was was Bill, you know, instead of William James, and um, it's also interesting to me too what an open mind he had, and you see in his friendships that although he was clearly religiously an agnostic, and at times, you know, would express his great frustration at the dogmatism of religious belief, um still here's one of his closest friendships is with this Irish priest, Canon Sheehan, who he met in Ireland. And he engaged in this really, I mean, beautiful correspondence with him. And um, he said at one point to another friend, he said, well, he said, it's amazing that, uh, that, uh, a saint like him would have a friendship with a heathen like me," he said he. Said maybe Catholic priests aren't quite as dogmatic as they make themselves out to be. But um, um, he he was interested in people, and he was interested in everything. Actually, he, one of his law secretaries said he was interested in everything except athletics. <laughs> and that comes through in this range of friendships he had.
0: Prior to the war, uh, he went to Harvard for college. What was his experience like at Harvard?
1: Well, um, you know, he he clearly was already beginning to make a mark as a literary figure in a way. And I think he was, you know, he suffered the usual uncertainties of uh of what he wanted to do with his life. And he was drawn to philosophy and uh, he knew Emerson and actually went and talked to Emerson for advice about what he should do. And I think Emerson dissuaded him from being a philosopher, which probably is good advice, but, um, and then the war comes in his senior year and uh, you know, an extraordinary, It was something like two-thirds of his Harvard class uh, enlisted in the Union Army. Um, uh, Quite extraordinary. And, uh, you know, in some ways you you see the, the, uh, you know, the kind of uh, uh, rage militaire, as the French call it, you know, the sudden enthusiasm for war gripping these young men who don't really know what they're getting themselves into – but um he he definitely was also a believer in the cause very firmly, and uh, is uh, i mean a a strong abolitionist and one of the surprising things to me, which I hadn't realized, was that was something of a minority among the Boston elite. I mean we tend to think of New England as the you know ground zero of the abolitionist movement, and it was, but most of Holmes's, you know, peers were wealthy people who had connections to the cotton industry, and uh, they were. And <clears throat> it was also a, quite a, a widespread feeling of looking down on Lincoln as this crude Western politician, not really, uh, you know, uh, not a Boston Brahmin by any stretch of the imagination. And so Holmes, really being the you know a uh, fired with the ideals of the union cause was actually in a minority among the Harvard men who he, he who volunteered I
0: was going to ask you specifically uh what did he think of Abe Lincoln
1: well you know he, he was he, he talks about this a few places later and and he said um he said, for many years after the war, I thought a, a myth was, was growing about, was being created about Lincoln. He said, he said, like most Boston people, I look down on Lincoln. And he said, I remember during the war talking to a fellow officer. We were musing about who would be remembered as a great man from the war. And he mentioned Lincoln. He said, but I think we both smiled but then he said i've since read some things that have made me change my mind and he didn't really detail that but i think he he came to you know i mean he was such an avid reader of of history and philosophy among everything else though he said i hate reading about those uh those years of the war he was although the war looms so large in his consciousness for the rest of his life he wasn't one of these people, veterans who wanted to relive it and and read about all of that. But he he did read, I I know he read a few books about Lincoln, I think changed his mind where he recognized his his greatness as a statesman and leading the country through this peril.
0: And uh, Holmes was injured uh, several times in the war. Where did he fight? What was that fighting like? and, And what was the nature of his injuries?
1: Well, he, he was, I mean, nearly killed twice. I mean, it was almost miraculous survival. At The Battle of Balls Bluff, he was shot in the chest, and the bullet missed, you know, uh, uh, the lining of the heart by a fraction of an inch. Uh, at Antietam, he was shot through the neck by a bullet, if you can imagine that. And, again, the bullet missed his, you know, jugular vein, uh, you know, uh, esophagus spinal cord. I mean, it, it was, you know, incredible. And each time he went back and then at Fredericksburg second Fredericksburg, he was wounded in the heel by a piece of shrapnel from an exploding shell. And um uh each time, you know, he recovered and returned to his uh, his duty. Um so uh you know it he he said um when he was, I think, in his nineties or almost, he said, I, "I don't understand why people men fear death." He said, "He said death and I are old friends," and uh, you know. And when uh, also there was this uh, famous incident where a whole bunch of public figures were sent bombs, and the one sent to Holmes was intercepted and uh, before it was delivered in the mail, and. And again, he, and I don't think he was just like bragging or, you know, showing off with some bravado. He said he just shrugged it off. And he said, he said, if I had to worry about all the bullets that have missed me, I'd have a job. <laughs> but he said the war taught me, he said the army taught me some great lessons. He said to endure being bored, he said, to be prepared for catastrophe. And the third, very interesting for someone of his class and upbringing, he said, and it taught me to look up to people he said he said that no matter how fine a fellow I thought myself in the usual course of events there were other men I learned to look up to who, who I would have looked down on had not experience taught me otherwise.
0: So after the war he turns to that long lengthy uh, uh, legal career. By the way, did he always have an interest in the law? What 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 sparked that specific decision?
1: You know, it, it it's an interesting question and he sort of told different stories and you know, it, it's not absolutely it, – it was never clear to me exactly where this came from. But um, he did say in one of his famous speeches about uh, the, uh, the path of the law, he said, you know, you can live as greatly in the law as any other subject. I think what attracted him was the possibilities of real scholarship and His famous book, The Common Law, was the outgrowth of that, and he felt, you know, I have to do something great and important before I turn 40, and he just made his own self-imposed deadline with that. And it was clearly the chance to think, to do scholarship, and to engage in a real kind of philosophy of the law. I mean, that's what appealed to him. And he saw. I think you know when he saw that possibility, it made all of. I mean, he said, you know, there's these years of just drudgery in in learning the law, but that was the goal that I think stimulated him and made it worthwhile to him.
0: That book you mentioned, the Common Law. Uh, he was 40, as you said. 1881 was the uh, date it was uh, written. So, uh, I gather the the chief most famous quote from that book is this one. He wrote, the life of the law has not been logic. It has been experience. What was he trying to say there?
1: Well, you know, yes, that is the most famous quote, and rightly so. And he says it right as I think in the second paragraph of the book. And what he was saying was the way the common law had been conceived of and taught and presented was it was this fixed, eternal system of pure logic, of syllogisms. We say, well, you decide this case because of this general principle or this analogous case, end of story. And he said, well, actually, this is all you know, a, a myth we've basically given ourselves. The law, in fact, the genius of the common law is that it evolves, it changes through dealing with actual cases. And it's always evolved to meet, as he said, the felt necessities of the time. Uh, New situations arise, and that was especially true during the years Holmes was on the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court when you had industrialization and new problems of pollution from factories and workers' rights and workers being injured. How do you balance these, these new interests? And the idea, which it was always, you know, the bugaboo that he had in his sights, and uh, of this idea, oh, there are these absolute rules of uh, property rights. That's that's how we settle this case. And he said, look, the law has always been uh, a balance of competing interests. It's finding a way to deal with. Problems that actually arise in the real world, and that's the genius of the common laws that it it allows itself to evolve. That was a very controversial view at the time, and it's you know it's it's now you know so non-controversial as almost not to even you know merit comment. Um, But this book of his, The Common Law, really put American legal scholarship on the world map was praised in Britain. Scholars there said Americans are surpassing us in legal scholarship. Uh, it was probably one of the most important intellectual achievements in any field by an American in the 19th century.
0: So Teddy Roosevelt becomes president in 1901. A year later, he nominates Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. for the Supreme Court. What did President Roosevelt see in Holmes and, and what kind of relationship did they have?
1: Well, um, you know, it's this is another interesting uh, look into history because sort of how different the court and the court appointment process has become. Um, it was – there was a tacit idea that there were seats for different parts of the country. And a justice from Massachusetts uh, uh, leaves the court And so there's an opening, and it's the Massachusetts seat to be filled. I mean, so that was sort of the number one thing. So Roosevelt was looking for someone from that part of the country. Um, Their relationship was fraught because Roosevelt clearly thought, I've appointed this judge, and he's going to do my bidding. And Holmes was a very independent thinker and refused to do so on particularly on this famous antitrust case. And Roosevelt was really beside himself uh, uh, and almost considered it a personal betrayal. And I think they patched things up more or less eventually, though I, I think that there was always a certain coolness after that. Um, but, um you know, Holmes was was not a man to be intimidated by uh, <laughs> that kind of pressure, and of course, having lifetime tenure helps. I guess uh, you mentioned give uh, you that confidence as well,
0: <laughs> right? You mentioned uh, several types of, of of major, big cases he was involved in. Take us a couple steps deeper on that free speech case and his yep. involvement and and what came out of it. Yeah,
1: well, there were a number of cases, particularly during the First World War, where this issue arose where the government was prosecuting uh, basically what was viewed as seditious speech. Anything interfering with the draft was a crime. And so there were some pretty innocuous like pamphlets protesting some aspect of the war and the government, the federal government charged, uh, It was a quite serious uh, crime with quite serious penalty. And Holmes or Holmes and Brandeis together were, you know, the lone dissenters. Um, And Holmes really clearly, you know, evolved his thinking about uh, free speech. Holmes was a skeptic about rights in general. He thought, you know, he said the rights of any given crowd are what they're willing to fight for That's was his view a rather pragmatic one he didn't accept the idea so much of uh, um, you know of of rights as this you know thing handed down from up above in the sky and um but i think he <clears throat> he really saw that and you know this was his famous uh, usually misquoted uh, shouting fire in a the theater line Um, He was trying to draw a line. He said, "Okay, how do we decide what speech is protected by, you know, First Amendment and what is not? The old common law rule was any speech with a bad intent could be uh, uh, criminalized or or halted by by the government, a bad tendency. Sorry. Um, And. Holmes said, well, you know, he said every idea is an incitement. You know, that was the argument. Oh, that well, this pamphlet was an incitement to oppose the war. He said every idea is an incitement. And he said, yes, uh, of course, he said the, the, the greatest defense of speech would not uh, permit someone to yell fire in a theater and cause a stampede and people to be killed. So. But he said it has to be that close to an actual uh, crime for it to act to be something that um, th- that could be outlawed, and that again was you know an extreme minority view on the Supreme Court, and not many years later it w- had become the accepted view. Was uh, was and Hol- still it, sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, go, go ahead and finish, please.
1: No, no, no. I, yeah, that, that was really the end of my I was going to
0: ask you, uh, Mr. Budiansky, um, uh, was Holmes married? Did he have a family of his own? It,
1: yes, he was. He had a very long and devoted marriage, no children. Um, and uh, he had many um, uh, very beautiful, usually accomplished, highly intelligent female friends, younger female friends, who he engaged in the, wonderful correspondence with. And there's been, you know, enormous speculation over the years what the nature of these relationships were. Um, Holmes told a number of his close friends later in life, you know, he, he always had a rather humorous way of expressing himself about these things as everything else. He said, I've always loved the dames, but I've never stepped over the line. And I think that was probably true. It was you know these sort of very flirtatious but also i mean really deep intellectual friendship and these younger women friends clearly just treasured this friendship of being taken seriously on an intellectual level by <clears throat> such a great and interesting man as Holmes was but he clearly was very devoted to his wife who was from a Boston the old Boston family too and uh and um, you know, unfortunately, there aren't that many letters between them because they were living together all this time, there are only a few, but um, from friends and the things you pick up from people who saw them, it was a very deep and, uh, and uh, uh, mutually devoted marriage.
0: As we uh, uh, wrap up, um, how did Holmes spend his uh, final few years after he uh, left the court?
1: Well, um, you know, not doing much. He said, I I feel like he wrote to one friend. I said, I feel like a a rock at the bottom of a stream with the water flowing over me. But, you know, he was throughout his life a voracious reader. He kept a list of every book he read. There were like 5,000 books in this list. It was about one a week. And he kept up his reading. At that point in his later years, he had his the secretary read aloud to him. But, you know, still a remarkable range of books. He read um, uh, Homer in the original Greek and Proust in the original French, Dante in the original Italian, and he read P.G. Woodhouse and Virginia Woolf and books about science and economics and philosophy and sociology. So, reading was, remained, I think, you know, a very important thing with him up to the end. And he, he still, you know, kept his correspondence and friendships going.
0: Just a final question about legacy. What was uh, the legacy of uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr.? How is he remembered today?
1: Well, I think he's most remembered for his dissents in the free speech cases, which had came to have an enormous impact on our understanding of First Amendment rights, Uh, I think more important, in a way, was his uh, challenging in the famous Lochner case. Again, one of the greatest dissents ever written soon became the law of the land, uh, challenging the idea that economic regulation was unconstitutional as a violation of the rights of contract. Um, And uh, his recognition of the federal court's role in guaranteeing fair trials, particularly involving cases in the South of kin's railroaded on trumped-up charges and convicted in matters of minutes of rape and murder and sentenced to death, you know, with these basically sham trials. And before Holmes, this was not viewed as something the federal government could interfere in, and Holmes changed that.
0: Stephen Budiansky is author of the book, Oliver Wendell Holmes, A Life in War, Laws, and Ideas. Thanks a lot for your time.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Books That Shaped America podcast. For more information about the series, you can visit our website, cspan.org books that shaped America. And remember to follow this podcast so you never miss an episode.